0: very much for the kind invitation um as a priest scientist one of the questions i often get this started actually before i was a priest when i was at mit was all about prayer and how do we know if prayer works and so what i'm going to do today given that this is a medical school is i'm going to uh, divide the talk primarily into two bits so the first bit is going to be the science of prayer and we're going to look at some of the uh randomized clinical trials associated with prayer under where prayer is understood as a clinical intervention in that would attempt to accelerate healing and improve health outcomes then i'd go i'd like to move to the theology of prayer and i'm going to because i'm a catholic priest so prayer of course broad and encompasses many different religious traditions i'm going to focus primarily on the christian account of prayer and i'm going to rely on the systematic insightful really sophisticated theological account provided by uh, Thomas Aquinas, the great Dominican Catholic uh, medieval philosopher and and, uh, philosopher and theologian who lived 800 years ago. And then I'm going to end with just a couple of comments based on bioethics. So I work in bioethics primarily. So my current interest now is CRISPR and the relationship with CRISPR, the sort of kind of ethical questions raised by CRISPR in terms of like gene drive, as well as um, modifications of the human genome, both somatic as well as um, germline. But here's the thing. What is the role of prayer in clinical practice? And what are the ethical questions that are raised by that? Because there was a study uh, that estimated that about 50% of patients in the United States would like their physicians to talk to them about their spiritual lives. And so there have been a lot of Bioethics issue raised by that. Like, what is an appro- what is the appropriate role of a physician or a nurse or a healthcare provider with regards to the patient's spiritual life? So, we're going to begin with the science, and I had to write down a couple of the stats because I'm never going to remember all of this. So, I did yesterday. I went on PubMed, and I said, "All right, if I put in prayer and healing, how many hits are you going to get?" You end up just yesterday. 2148. And in fact, if you look for intercessory prayer and just intercessory prayer, you get 101 peer-reviewed hits on PubMed that deal with all sorts of dimensions of prayer. Now when they if you look at these studies, they're going to divide these studies are going to be divided up into two separate foci. So the first one is the first group are going to focus on personal prayer. And what they're going to deal with here is primarily personal prayer as a practice of spirituality or religion. Now, not surprisingly, there are distinctions made between spirituality and religion. Spirituality is often understood to be a personal practice. It's how one connects to meaning, to transcendence, to the supernatural. While religion is often associated with institutional participation and communal Uh, spiritual practices and so you have situations you have numerous studies that look at for example how spiritual practices aid or hinder health uh, outcomes so I'm going to describe a couple papers so you've got and they're often associated with psychiatry and psychology not surprisingly. so Genick and Al, 1998, International Journal of Psychiatry and Medicine, just to give you a sense of the kind of studies we're talking about. It's a large sample of older adults who are struggling with high blood pressure. So they're either, they've been diagnosed with high blood pressure, and and some of them have already begun uh, taking drugs, probably statins. And it's a longitudinal study over eight years, and the idea here is, Controlling for age and race and gender, education, BMI, physical functioning. So they're going to control for all of these. Can you see a difference in blood pressure between those who um, attended religious services, prayed or studied the Bible, and those who did not? And this paper reports a small but significant improvement in terms of uh, blood pressure values. That's interesting because they have... They have an interesting control. So they look to see whether or not individuals who simply watch religious TV or listen to religious radio, they don't actually go to church or temple or or, or whatever, but they're just watching TV. Um, Is there an effect there? They don't see anything. So you see, so these are the kind of studies that, that attempt to determine whether or not religious practices on the individual have an effect on health outcomes paper uh, 1999 journal of psychosomatic research HIV positive individuals we want to figure out cd4 positive counts and you want to compare two populations two cohorts those that basically pray have expressed their spiritual lives however you understand that then you have an attend services versus a control group that don't and again um, Uh, the reported statistical significance, higher levels of CD4 positive uh, cells. So you've got got a situation here where you're looking at trying to understand how an individual's prayer life, understood, and I'm speaking as a Christian, affects his or her individual health. Now, not surprisingly, because these are science papers, and there are hundreds of these, you're going to try to look for mechanisms. I'm a molecular biologist. My students and I look at cell death in yeast, um, and it's not enough to simply describe what's going on. You want to try to um, to understand, to explain the phenotype. And so here, they're, they're going to have four different proposals, and it's striking because at the end of the day, it's very hard in my view to really distinguish these four possible mechanisms. So one of them is health behavior. So there was a study that looked at Uh, religious people who undergo fasting. So they're basically saying intermittent fasting. When you start fasting for Easter, for Christmas, for the Assumption, intermittent fasting can give rise to these health benefits. So that's one account for the mechanism. The other one is social support. So there's an account where you hang out with other people and simply isolation, we know this, there's data that suggests that isolation um, makes you sick. And so the idea here is that you're hanging out with a lot of other people. There's a common purpose, the religious-spiritual purposes. So the community provided by your your religious and spiritual ties gives you support. Then there's psychological support. We're dealing here with what are described as positive mental states. Again, as a priest scientist how do you quantify a positive mental state? But there's an attempt to try to do that. then... There's the mysterious fourth category called psi influences, psi. So this is just the generic psi. This is the fourth supernatural or trans-empirical effects, and there is an and, and this is, I think, some investigators who are open to the possibility that the material is not enough. And so it really, what's really striking is if you read all of these papers. investigators come in then they have their own particular uh, faith structure or or not and that's going to impact the way they interpret the results so um, you have all of that and I think that there if you look at a Cochrane review of all these studies there's a suggestion that spiritual practices however you describe them uh, improve health outcomes for patients Uh, The mechanism is unclear and uh, as it priest theologian, I was going to say, well, it's probably going to remain always unclear, in the sense of like you're not going to be able to establish p-values to establish how prayer actually works in the individual. What is most striking, though, is there's a subset of these studies that look at intercessory prayer, and this is fascinating to me. Now, intercessory prayer is described in many ways in the literature. You can, it's called healing at a distance, or people, there, there are there are investigators who are very suspicious of the word prayer. So it's called directed intentionality. <laughs> I love that, right? <laughs> so you direct your intentionality towards someone else, and you ask whether something happens. And in the last 20 years, so you really, it's really exploded in the last 20 years. And I'm just going to describe two studies that I find particularly uh, interesting. So. There is a paper published in 2001. It's a retroactive IP study. Now, this is, you have 33,393 patients from 1990 to 1996 who are struggling, well, who are suffering from bacterial sepsis. All right? So that's the standard case. You randomize them completely, so it's randomized, controlled, double-blind. I mean, complete—you know—the the, the, the ideal structure. But here's the story: what you do is you have people in two thousand pray for them. See? So the, the the presupposition here, of course, is that, as the, the the paper is very clear, God is eternal, so God is outside of time, and so you can pray. So what would you can imagine the experiment? So you basically have the names of people, right? And you just hand them out to people to pray for, and they have, they have no idea what, and you're, there, there is a, um, so they were, they were, they were, there was a specific prayer intention. You had to control for everything. So they had to be, pre- well-being and full recovery. That was the, the, the control. And the idea is that half of them were prayed for, half of them were not. And then at the end of the day, uh, you tabulate all the data, and you calculate p-values. That's really what it comes down to. Now, you've got three particular criteria for this. So you have duration of fever, hospital mortality rates, and then length of stay. And what they show is that there are statistically significant p-values of so p of 0.01, p of 0.04, so we're that one. So length of stay, 0.01, difference between the two populations uh, where the prayed for people, those who received the directed intentionality, uh, were, were, uh, they stayed? They had shorter stays overall. Seven day, the median of seven days versus eight days in the hospital, what was striking is the maximum stays. So 165 for those who were prayed for, 320 days for those who were not prayed for. And then duration of fever, again, there was a statistically significant uh, shorter number of days of duration of fever. So it's very striking you have a study like this. Uh, another study, Cha et al, what happens here? This is in Korea, 219 women in Korea who are undergoing IVF embryo transfer for pregnancy. You. Get people in the United States to pray for these people in Korea so you have 219 it's Christian directed IP and then there's direct IP and non-specific IP and so what's striking here Again, it's masked randomized so the idea is you're going to try to do your best to, um, to mimic a clinical trial when you actually look at the data after the fact pregnancy rates for those who were paid for 50% versus 26% with a p-value of 0.0013, and then implantation rates, and I'm guessing what, I didn't actually have a chance to, to read the paper, uh, but my guess is pregnancy rate is probably a positive test versus implantation is, you know, the further, the further um, Further, probably ultrasound, 16% versus 8% where you have a p-value of 0. 0.0005. Again, the women who were prayed for had a higher rate of implantations. Now, so there again, there are several of these. There are actually more than several, So, like 20 of these. And I'm just highlighting a couple to give you a sense of the way that science is trying to interrogate prayer. Now... Let's talk about the criticisms. So not surprising there's an enormous amount of literature out there uh, from believers and non-believers. So believers will say this whole this whole research program is flawed because you're testing God. And we will talk when we get to the theology bit it'd be interesting to talk about what that means. What, what is it what is prayer? How do we understand prayer? How do you understand prayer vis-a-vis requesting God for something? Is he just Santa Claus? Uh, for adults um so there, so believers have uh complained that science should not be doing these experiments now it's also interesting because you have many non-believers who are very critical of these so um there are four major criticisms that are brought forth and i just want to share them with you one is not completely controllable so the idea here is you're not sure if the individuals who were not prayed for by your group were being prayed for by their mothers, for example. And so there's a debate over whether or not these studies are intercessory prayer or what are called supplementary prayer. So IP versus SP. There's a whole debate in the literature as to how to do this. It's really, really hard to do. Now what's striking is a response to do is animal studies. So yeah, that, that, there's proposals out there to do animal studies. These are with vets. So the idea is that um, You can do you to try to remove These uncontrollable, you know mom is praying for for husband or whatever What you do is you go and deal with pets uh, Pets or even just vets like cows on the field and the idea here is you have animal models We have animal models for everything so you develop an animal model for these intersexory prayer studies where what you do is you have people pray for cows and the assumption there is you don't really have random people praying for cows <laughs> and then you collaborate with vets and you try to figure out the same thing. Can you see an enhanced survivability for cows that were prayed for as compared to cows that were not prayed for? So that, that's, that's uh, one, again, when you read this literature, I can understand, but the scientists in me, as well as the priest in me, cringes uh, at some of this. So then the, the second thing is like primary outcome. So no one's quite sure how to measure success, right? So one of the things, as an molecular biologist, you really, really want to make sure you've controlled for all the variables, so that at the end of the day, when you're looking at statistical significance, you've identified that one factor that will allow you to understand mechanism, and so the question here is, we're not quite sure. And the danger is that when you have a multifactorial, you're just going to throw out all, and you're going to compare numerous parameters. You're going to get a p-value of less than 0.05, and this is called this, this. I think it's called scatter shot fallacy. The idea, like after, if you just get enough factors in there p-value is going to to get significant. The most striking objection, however, is not surprising, given the way that scientists think. Because you cannot have a mechanism, it's illegitimate. (laughs) Right? God bless you. So there's an account of where, and you can see this as a molecular biologist, if you can't come up with a mechanism, people are very hesitant to really listen to you, because they're not quite sure if you're looking at Correlation, causation, all of that. And so, the biggest thing, and so there are, there are actually people out there who are proposing mechanisms like non-local, I had to write this down, non-local features of consciousness. And so there's a, a research paradigm up there, not surprisingly, I mean, you may, not, you may be surprised to discover that the NIH supports many of these, Uh, studies because there is now a whole I don't know if it's an institute but there's certainly research paradigms out, proposals out there, RFAs out there for complementary non-traditional medical interventions and so prayer uh, acupuncture, this is all part (coughs) of an entire package. The NIH actually does fund so, so, now the question is, how are we going to understand this? So, I'm going to move now to the theology. And I'm going to, it, it's striking, like, I'm not going to comment on, the, on these as a theologian until we go through the theology. So, first of all, what is prayer? Now, it's very interesting because for Aquinas, prayer is a conversation between friends. So, um, he's an Aristotelian. He looks at the world in Aristotelian categories. And if you read the Nicomachean Ethics, book seven and book eight, Aristotle has, in my mind, and I still teach it at at Providence College, accounts of friendship. And in many ways, as a priest working with millennials, one of the things, we're facing a crisis of friendship. People are not sure how to be friends and how to have friends. Uh, sex, Sex gets in there and um, it complicates everything and Aristotle had this account of friendship, which is still very salient today It's it's, it's wonderful. He, just, he says there are three kinds of friendship now you, you know you're gonna notice that moderns That's us have a very na- narrow account of friendship that usually has to do with affective attachment but for Aristotle, it, must, it, it was wider than that. He was talking in terms of, of a, pol- pol- a polis, a political structure. So he would talk about friendships of utility. So for example, when you get your hair cut, you and your barber are friends in that category because he's getting something, $10 plus tip, you're getting the haircut. So, both of you are ordered towards the same end. And one of the things Aristotle will do, will do is he will say a friendship is defined as two individuals who share a common end. And depending upon that end, you have different kinds of friendship. So, if it's utility, it's because both of you, in a sense, are using each other for good. But of course, you consented to do that. Then there is the friendship of pleasure. So two of you playing computer games with each other, it's both utility, because you need an opponent, and it's pleasurable. Uh, Most people don't find a haircut pleasurable. So the (laughs) idea here is that when you're playing computer games, it becomes both, right? And he will say that there's a third kind, a third kind, and this is true friendship. This is the friendship of virtue. Where two individuals, the common good, the shared goal of the two individuals is basically human flourishing and human excellence. And the idea is that someone is helping you to become the best you in, 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 a, in a profoundly full and rich sense. Now, here, here's the thing, right? Uh, especially from the Christian perspective, marriage is supposed to be three of those together. It's a very striking thing. It's the idea that uh, your utility, you need each other to have babies, to care for each other, that sort of thing. Pleasure, self-explanatory. And then virtues that spouses are supposed to challenge each other to grow in excellence. And from a Christian theological perspective, this involves holiness. And so you see you have three separate goals. Now, Aquinas, for the first time, really in Christian history, takes these categories and applies them to God. Now, now and he says, he says, that, that if you want to understand what salvation is, salvation is friendship with God. Because you see, both of you want the same end. Both of you want you to be saved for the Christian. And so it is friendship. And so, and in fact, everything, if you look at his theology, it looks at how friendship permeates the Christian life. And how different kinds of friendship will lead you to virtue or to vice, to sanctification, or to to damnation. And the whole adventure of religious life, of the Christian life, is to become God's best friend. Is he your BFF? That's really, that's a really interesting, because that that second F for God is eternal, right? So so there's an account that you and I are being challenged to become God's best friend. You are already his best friend. This is a very interesting uh, claim. But he may not be your best friend. And the process of growing in holiness is figuring out how he becomes your best friend above every other creature, every other desire for a creature in this world. That's really the challenge. Now, once you have that perspective, once you see that the Christian life is developing a friendship with God, that's not surprising that Thomas will take prayer and he will say, prayer is a conversation with God. It is a conversation with friends. Now, there are two kinds of prayer. He's a Christian, so they will always talk about two kinds of prayer. There is the personal prayer, there's the prayer where you and your friend speak to each other, and then there is liturgical prayer, where you speak to your friend with all of his other friends. You see? So, and the church is a community of friendship. And the idea here is that all of you together are speaking to your friend, to your common friend. And of course the great mystery of God's being God is that each of us can be his best friend. And we are each his best friend without losing out on someone else's being his best friend, right? So with, with us, I can have one best friend if you have beyond the Dunbar number 150 friends, you're familiar with the Dunbar number, the number of relationships based on brain capacity that's been calculated on comparing primates of different sizes. Our Dunbar number is 150. The idea is that when you, that is the maximum number of relationships that you can maintain um, over a long period of time in a healthy way without stressing out. And now once you start to have a thousand friends on Facebook and you're trying very hard to maintain these relationships, it's incredibly draining. And the idea here, and there are psychologists who propose this is that, once you go beyond that Dunbar number, it's actually beyond the biological capacity of the social brain. It's a very interesting account. And so the idea is that our ability to have friends is limited. And that there is really, uh, you know, only enough of you to be shared. And you can't share yourself out with everyone. Now, Aquinas will say that God is radically different than that. By his very definition, God can share all of himself with each one of us without the other ones losing out. And that's the great mystery. So now you're talking, going back to prayer, you're having this conversation. You're having this conversation. At Aquinas and then it's particularly the mystical tradition. And I, I'm talking here uh, again of the, of the Carmelite tradition. Now what's interesting is you, uh, in the Catholic tradition, it will extend, looking at the Song of Songs, so if you look at the Song of Songs, what uh, these Catholic scholars are going to say, and I think those in the Reformed tradition are also beginning to open this up, themselves up to this, is this account that the friendship that we have with God is going to, if it is done right, if, if, you, if, if both you and him together, and it's, it's both you and him, it's like a friendship, it will blossom in romance. So, so, the idea, if you look at the Song of Songs, the Song of Songs describes the relationship between God and a soul as a relationship between a lover and a beloved. And so, the Christian tradition for 2,000 years, looking at that, that, that book in sacred scripture, has really tried to understand what it means to say that the Christian not only becomes a friend, but becomes a beloved. And then, how does that account impact the way we understand prayer? And so, what you see, for Aquinas, if you look at prayer, is that prayer, there are different modes and moments of prayer. And the analogy is actually to look at a blossoming romance. So, two two med students get to Harvard, you know, in the midst of all that craziness, they become friends. So there's an initial friendship, and you know there's an initial attraction, there's initial desire. And the very beginning of that is all about like, what's your favorite food? You know, what should you like to study in class? Okay, and so it becomes a matter of like, you tell me everything about yourself, and I tell you everything about myself. And there's this deep need to know the other. And so, not surprisingly, and the tradition after him will describe prayer and will say the the initial moments of prayer especially for the new, the convert the person who has just discovered this friendship with God is going to be an obsession with talking who are you? what are you? you know I tell I I have students who go I don't know I've never prayed before what should I do? I mean go to whatever chapel any church you go are you there? that's how you have to pray he goes is that prayer? I'm like of course it's a, it's a really, because they think it's great. Our Father, what? Stop, stop. Just go in and say, who are you? And I go, you can even say, I don't even know if you're there, but I've heard other people who've met you, and they say you're cool, but I'm not sure. And that's prayer. And the idea that at the beginning, prayer, like a budding romance, a blessing romance, has a lot of talk. What what are you? Who are you? How do I know you? And I tell my students too, like, you know, for for, for Christians anyway, there is, a, there is a deep conviction that you cannot know yourself unless you know the Lord. And so there's a sense where you go into prayer and you say, who am I? And that conversation of who are you and who am I is the beginning of the kind of conversation that will blossom into sanctity. Now, just as in any human relationship between persons, what will happen is that it will get routine. You know? There will be a routine part of, of, of married life, and a huge chunk, actually, of married life becomes routine. And it's really interesting because when I go into a restaurant and I'm looking around, you can see the young love and the mature love. The young love is they're holding hands, they're talking, it's all about the other, it's all about us. And then the mature love, they're talking, they're eating, most of the time they're not talking, they're just eating, they get up, they talk, and there's just a being. And if you see the most mature form of human love, when you're dealing with individuals who are who have uh, suffered each other for 50 years of marriage, you know? So, And the word suffer is, in using that word, and um, it's interesting because suffer is to tolerate difference, and that difference causes the great discomfort in you, right? You will see, like my grandparents, (coughs) before they passed away, they didn't talk anymore. And yet, my Lola, my grandmother, knew exactly what was going on in Lola's head. I mean, it was like, even before, even before he knew he was thirsty, she did. She'd get up, go to the refrigerator, get a glass, put it in front of him, and goes, oh, I'm thirsty, drink. <laughs> okay? And you have that deep, incredibly deep knowledge of the other. And that speaking is not necessary. And what you also see is that they have become like each other in weird ways. They can read each other's thoughts, and it's not the complete. You know, so I have students at the very beginning like, "Yeah, I can complete her sentence." You give it 50 years of life, you don't even have to make a sentence, right? <laughs> the thoughts, I can. I know what he's thinking. I know what she's thinking, and the idea you see is that they have lived with each other enough that they know each other's desires and they know each other's. What they like, what they don't like, and in the beginning, the things you—it's really interesting. There are things you, that will drive you nuts about the person you love, and at the very end, they are the things that are endearing. It's so weird. <laughs> now, um, I, I because I've had, you know, I've, I've talked to numerous couples, as you watch them go through uh, this purification because it is a purification process. Because what has to happen is you surrender yourself, and she surrenders herself. Uh, those bits that you realize are not going to be changed. You know, I, at the very beginning, um, I have couples where she wants to change him, and after a while she says, "Father, I give up," and that's where it becomes really healthy, actually, <laughs> because at the very beginning she's trying to change him or he's trying to change her. It's very frustrating, uh, and I, you know, she begins to discover there's only one person who can change him, and that's him. But then what happens is if I and myself, I can challenge him to want to change himself so that his love and my love will grow. You see, prayer is supposed to be like this. You see? Um, this is the thing, there is discursive prayer. Uh, the very beginning of a Christian's life, prayer is discursive. It's chit-chatting, talking. Um, after a while, um, it gets quiet. I remember when I entered the order, this is a story I often tell when I was a novice at boot camp for God. The first year, we, we prayed, you know, it's like six, five, six hours of prayer all the time and every day. And after a few months of this, I, I, I had to speak to my novice master. He's, he's the priest, now deceased, great wise priest. And I walked <coughs> in and I said, Father, I don't know, there's something wrong. He said, what's wrong, brother? He said, I've been praying for, I think it was like six months, whatever, however number of months. And I said, uh, I've said it all. There's nothing left for me to say. Like, I just said it over and over and over again. What else am I going to say to God? And there's still four months of the bishop left in the rest of my life. (laughs) And he goes... Now it's time for butt prayer. I always tell this story, right? And I go, what is butt prayer? And he goes, now you just take your butt into the chapel. You say, Lord, I am praying with my butt. My butt is here. And so, and what actually happens, this is very interesting, right? He goes, so much of prayer is just being there. And you will see, even in human relationships, even in human relationships, 99% of what you do and how you show your love, the person you love, is just me. And as you spend time, the butt prayer becomes quiet. And you simply look at him, and he looks at you, and you simply look. And you begin to, your lives, you know, your lives become one. Just like if you have... A husband and his wife, what you see over time is that they become one, just like Genesis prop- uh, proposes. Because what actually happens is if you spend enough time with that person, not surprisingly, that person is going to rub off on you, and vice versa. Which is why when you spend time with God, the Christian says, the the best empirical data so this is going back to the studies if you're asking what is the best empirical data for christian prayer it is not the number of healings or how many millimeters of mercury this group or that it is the generation the creation of a saint it is a man, a woman, a Christian who is like Christ. You see this in in the New Testament. Saint Paul will talk about you have to become like me, and together we will become like Christ. The idea here is that the perf- the, the proof, and it's always hard. This proof is there are no controls because individuals are unique. Right? Just like every romance is unique. It's very hard to say, I'm going to have a study on love and exactly what that means, because relationships are unique, deeply unique. The idea is that it is the saint of God who shows you, especially a, like a Mary Magdalene. This is Easter in the Christian tradition, and you see how this woman is transforming. There's a tradition that she was an adulteress. She's the woman caught in adultery, described in John 8. And that, and a transformation, hanging out with Jesus changes her. And you see this too in the witness of the early Christians, especially the Apostles. The idea is that Peter the Apostle, was wimp, right? is in the course of his Christian life because of his encounter with, with G- Jesus of Nazareth is so transformed that he becomes he becomes someone who is willing to go to, to the cross uh, for love of his Savior. Now, it's interesting because a lot of people will say what's the difference between this and a cult? Right? So, so the idea, the idea is Aren't you describing a process that can that is akin to what happens in a cult? And in one sense, yes, in another sense, no. It has to deal with what the goal is. Remember, so it's really striking that Jesus for the Christ, Jesus describes the paradigm signs of the transformation that will occur as you pray. First of all, you will love your enemies. Right? This is a very strange anti-cultic account, uh, because cults usually defy themselves vis-a-vis the other. There's us and the other, and the Christian, and again because I speak as a Christian, the Christian radically is opposed to that kind, the, the other is actually friend. And so you must love your neighbor as yourself. So the idea that, especially the enemy, and that you would be willing to die for your enemy. So so this is the account that um, is really striking. Because if you look at the kinds of behaviors that we try to quantify in these studies, they are all at the level of nature. And what is so striking is that When you look, you can explain in a biological way why these sort of mechanisms could be true. What is very striking about the Christian account of human excellence and fulfillment is that it's really not, it's maladaptive, if you want to look technical term, right? So you allow the enemy to kill you, not good for transmission of genes to the next progeny. There is an account where Yes, you can talk about kin selection, you can talk about group selection, you can say, I'm going to help someone who is going to help me back. And there are many attempts, again, scientific attempts, to to explain a Mother Teresa in that way. The difficulty is it's very hard to talk about trying to help your enemy, especially in a way that is unknown to others, where the left hand does not know what the right hand is doing. Because this undermines all of the basic tenets of group selection. Because group selection presupposes that all of your behavior is uh, done in the presence of the group, and so what you may lose now is actually gained because of your status within the group. And so you see the Christian account is radically counter that. There's an account where everything that you do, you must do, you know, go into the room within your heart and do it in secret. And the reason for that is this is that at the very root of Christianity and the account of prayer is that this is first and foremost an initiative of God. You see, this is a very grace first. You see, not nature. So the idea is that the reason why you respond in friendship to God is because God has reached out in friendship to you first. And so you see, when I, when I, when I look at these, I, I'm a scientist, I love the numbers, you look up the p-values, they look cool. And for a certain group of people, for apologetics reasons, and I know, because I've spent most of my life and my career working with scientists, and, and this kind of data for some people can either generate incredible interest or incredible score, depending on who you're talking to. Uh, but the idea here is that um, there is a certain role in this sort of study, but this certainly doesn't touch the heart of the matter. Now, for prayer, so we're moving, I was talking about that, that, the personal prayer. What about intercessory prayer, understand from a theological perspective? So, a lot of people will say, my students ask me this at Providence College, like, why should we pray because God knows it already? Makes sense, right? Like God knows everything. And do you really change God's mind? Right, so do we do we have a very fickle God? He looks down and he says, "Oh, look at Nate, Nate's studying, and Nate's uh, he's go- his his studies aren't going so well. He just can't get enough DNA from all those those uh, individuals down in India. And so what I'm going to do is he's going to go pray, and I, I'm, I'm going to wait. Okay, so so there's this account of is God like that? And you now have an account where you're where you're equating, say, the Christian God. With the god of the Rome, the gods of the Romans or the gods of the Greeks, and and uh, Aquinas will say no, you can't change God's mind. There's a reason why this is the case. And you, I, I have no opportunity to go into why God is pure act, and because he's pure act, he's incapable of change. He's a verb, not a noun. And the idea here is that God has ordained from the beginning of time that there are things he's going to give to each one of us. But he's also ordained that out of those things he's going to give to us, some of those things he's going to give to us in response to prayer. You see? So Aquinas will say that we pray because there are some things that he's going to give to us when we pray. And until we pray, from his wisdom, he's not giving them because he's waiting for us, because he wants to give them to us in response to prayer. So it's not that we inform God. He knows. But there is, in the providence of God, there is this coming together of His will and our will, so that, um, and of course we have to say His will be done. Which is why it's so striking, even these, because one of the things I have to tell my, my, my students, as well as the people I have the accomp- privilege of accompanying in life is, sometimes, often, God says no. You see, the assumption of all these studies is that God always says yes. The negative control is going to include what God is doing. You know, so, so you, you, you have, these people who were prayed for, these people were not prayed for, but you don't know, of those people who were prayed for, for some of them, God said no. And for some of these, God said yes, even without prayer. And so, if you have an account of God that is presupposed by Christianity, it becomes very, very difficult to really come up with a randomized clinical trial that properly encapsulates the mechanism of action that a Christian would hold for how prayer works. Now I'm gonna end in the last two minutes um, with, so I have served uh, as a hospital chaplain at York Cornell Presbyterian on the Upper East Side, MSK, and the, the hospital uh, Hospital for Special Surgery, sometimes the Clinical Research Center for Rockefeller. So, on the Upper East Side, those large facilities are actually within the parish boundaries of the Dominican Parish in New York. And so, when I was ordained to the Holy Priesthood, that's where I was sent. So I had the privilege of like just hanging out and um, <coughs> accompanying people, most of whom were dying. Because these are tertiary care facilities. I'm sure you're familiar with them. You're dealing with uh, serious illness here. And um, so, uh, One of the things I was surprised about is that I spent a lot of my postulate uh, postulate not only accompanying the patients, but also the healthcare providers. And the last time I came here, we talked about some of the struggles that healthcare providers, uh, both believers and non-believers, deal with because they're dealing with uh, the luminal luminal questions of human existence, the the edges. You know, you're dealing with death and life and meaning and no meaning, uh, eternity, uh, annihilation, all of that. And, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of my talk, there are, there are studies that suggest, and I know my personal pastoral experience shows, patients want to talk to doctors and nurses about their spiritual lives if they it. Now, there was a very, there was a, uh, Bernie Lowe at UCSF, he's a, a nationally recognized bioethicist, he came up with a paper talking about prayer as prayer in the life of the healthcare profession. And the ethical dimensions of that. Now, what's really interesting is that when you do look at all these studies, healthcare providers do not know how to deal with spiritual reality in the context of care. They just don't, right? So there's the danger. So there's, um, I've talked to physicians, surgeons particularly, and they're not sure how to address the situation. First of all, they don't wanna, I've had surgeons say, I don't really wanna know my patient. It's a very interesting, especially from the surgeons, the idea here is I'm going to go in, I'm going to fix it. I'm like a mechanic father. There's a, the, the, the car is messed up. We got to open up the, the hood. I got to pull things out. I got to pull things back in. And then I send the car along the way. And so it's very difficult for me to really get beyond that. I just Maybe the medic, medic doc, you know, those going to medicine versus those who go in surgery, and then you talk to those who go into medicine. No, it's the nurses. <laughs> it's the nurses, and then you. I know at the end of the day, it's the chaplain. So we get called in. Now, what actually is very striking is patients feel abandoned. Okay, so they will say, "My doc is a human being, just like me." And I need to talk to my doc about human being things. Human being things, those are the kind of things that patients want to to talk about. Some of those human being things have to deal with medical, clinical prognosis, diagnosis, whatever. But there are human being things that people want to talk about. And because the physician, because the healthcare provider has so much authority, They want to engage that person in the conversation. As they've also explained it to me, this personalized the physician. I want to know that this doctor cries. I had one patient say that to me. I want to know my doctor actually has suffered and cried because right now, Father, he's a robot. And he's only worried about my kidney. Because now, of course, (laughs) the difficulty, you know, you've got to... The difficulty you've got numerous people, and it's not just me, I've got the kidney doc, I've got the heart doc, then I've got, the nurse is pretty much the person who tries to hold it together. Um, and I go, after all, I want someone to worry about me. It's a very, I'm just telling you this, it's, it's a commentary on medicine in our country today, but that's just the reality, and you know it, and you know it, the question is, what is the place for prayer in practice? Now, uh, there are two concerns raised by uh, these bioethicists. Uh, one of them is, there's a power differential. So the idea is that if you as a physician said, do you want to pray? The difficulty is that the patient is going to, whether one way or that gonna feel coerced to pray. And I actually, even I as a priest, am aware of this, right? So if you wanted to, to you. It is very difficult for a patient to say no if a priest or a healthcare provider says, Do you want to pray? So I'm just going to tell you that. I think that's a legitimate concern that needs to be raised. Okay? Now the second concern, which makes me smile, because this is again a symptom of our culture, is that the emphasis are concerned that doctors are not professionally trained to pray. So it's beyond the professional competence. Since doctors have to practice within their professional competence, then prayer is doing something that is not. Okay, it's very it's a very interesting thing because again it asks the question: can a physician be a human being in the presence of another human being? Or is that identity so strong, so so sacred that you cannot put that aside? Uh, the more fundamental more fundamental things. Now it's, uh, and this actually goes back to all those studies. So a lot of people are concerned that many of these studies, like that retroactive study I talked about, there was not informed consent. So the people in 2000 did not get informed consent from the from people in 1990 and 1996. Now this is very striking because we often get informed consent because we're worried that this medical intervention may harm that person and we have to get their consent. So there's a debate out there between bioethicists, ethicists who say, you don't need consent because prayer is meaningless, so there's gonna be no risk of anything. And then there are those who say, well, if prayer is a truly medical intervention in a randomized clinical trial, then you have to get informed consent because people may get freaked out if they know they're being prayed for. You see, so it's a very, it's a very striking thing. So um, how do you do this? I'm just gonna, the question I think that is, quote, safe, that you can bring up if you feel moved to, is the following. You, and this is the way that I do it when I go in as a priest. And this is like human being, human being, now I'm a priest, so there are very tricky things in play when, in my practice. So for example, when I was at, at, at New York Cornell Presbyterian, there were Italian patients who refused to have me enter the door, because if I entered the door, they would die. So, so I'd have to be standing there at the door of their pay, of their room and I'd have to have a conversation with me not cr- crossing the threshold. So you're dealing with superstition here. But you know, people are people and death, death brings up many concerns. So you go, okay, so and we're talking about Jesus from a five feet across, right? And he wants a blessing with holy water, so I've got to like <laughs> <laughs> Can't go in, though. Can't go in. His mother has told him. His grandmother told him, like, if the priest wants in, this is bad news. Um, so, you see, there are also concerns that I, as a professional, if you, if you, if you look at a priest as a professional provider of some form of care, there are things that I have to learn as well. And one of the easiest ways that I've been able to engage people in spiritual matters is, you can ask them, does faith have any role to play in your life? And you see, just you're asking that is a very safe question. People will say, some will say no, and that's it. It's done. But you see, it opens the door to all of a sudden this patient goes, oh my god, my doctor is really w- willing to talk. <clears throat> now you have to be careful, of course, because then you can have like some serious unloading going on. Then you can call the chaplain. Um, but, but the idea here, right? The idea here is that you try, as physicians and healthcare providers, to be a human being to your patients, so you can talk about human being things, and that these human being things involve life, death, prayer, or none of the above. It just has to deal with accompanying a person uh, who is who is probably going to reach death before you. But you, too, are dying, right? I I was telling this in my class yesterday. We're all dying, just at different rates. And um, the the Christian will say, this is important to remember it so often. Because otherwise, we get so caught up in the world today. Thank you very much. Any questions? It's more of a commentary. But the ones I heard... Somebody asked Mother Teresa would talking to God it's like. Mother Teresa was like, "It's like, do you like do you say anything?" He's like, "No, I, I I just say does God say anything to you?" "No, not really." And, and she said like, "If you can't understand that, and it's like, I got nothing else to tell you." I was like, "I don't understand it." So I felt like, "You it's love." You see, the deepest form of prayer, and the, the, the irony of that comment is that Mother Teresa for the last 50 years of her life. Experienced darkness. She did not. She was not. She did not experience the consolation, the spiritual consolations that most people experience when they pray. She was. She loved. It. So there's a she, she. there's a Dominican who is a um, who was who had a who's professor of spiritual theology in Rome. Got to know her very really well. He wrote a book to love him in the darkness Mother Teresa's 50 years was to love him in the darkness it's it's where your love of God your faith in God you remember Hebrews right faith is to know even without seeing so the idea here is that you love him and she would say I would love him even if he doesn't exist and you have great saints saying I will love him even if he sends me to hell now the interesting thing of course is that is diametrically impossible um, love of God cannot exist in hell. It's just the very nature of it, the absence of it. But, but the account, you see, you have to understand, this is what I've dis- discovered in my own life, if you understand that prayer is romance, if you understand that prayer moves from doing, which is how it usually starts, to being, that the, my grandparents loved each other more at the end of their lives than they did on the day of their marriage, and that the silence, the absence of apparent conversation was actually a manifestation of the deepest transformation of love, then that's the kind of analogy that that we have to deal with as Christians. And that it takes time. There will be times when you will be bored of prayer. Prayer will get dull. It will get boring. It will just get mundane. And yet, we continue to do it. Why? Not because it makes us feel good, but because He is God. He is God, and prayer, worship, is the proper response of the beloved to the lover. The the conversation, like like when you people are married 30 years and they're like bored of each other, I go, they'll just say, "But that's life." I'm not going to go out and start looking, go around on, on I don't know what is it now, Tinder. (laughs) I, I have you're supposed to do this? I've never done this. But um, they're like, what am I going to do? And what happens is you go through a phase of transformation, and then there's just a settledness with the person you love. And that transformation is the deepest form of love that the human person is able to undergo, and we are called to undergo that transformation. That's called sanctification, right? That's the, the grace. Um, that will and, and God working in us, changing us, so we become people who are capable of receiving and giving him the love that he wishes to give us. Any other questions? Well, thank you very much.